everybody. It is, uh, it is good to be back. Um, if you're new and you're like, well, where is he coming back from? So uh, you, guys, uh, you guys just blessed me and my family with uh, a six-week sabbatical. And uh, I just, the first thing I want to say, standing back up here with, uh, with my church family today, uh, on behalf of Sarah and myself, is thank you. Uh, so I've uh, been a pastor for eight years here at Park, and uh, the, the, the general cadence of things is after seven years, uh, we, the, the church gifts their pastors a, a, a sabbatical to have a chance to kind of back up, reflect on ministry, reflect on what's going well in the church, reflect on their own ministry and what they can be doing better, where they can adjust things. And I just want to say thank you uh, for that precious gift. Uh, we had a lot of time with family, a lot of time with God, uh, a lot of time just reflecting and, uh, and I can tell you that we just have a, a renewed confidence about us, and so uh, we are just grateful. So thank you for everyone just allowing that to happen. Thank you for many of you. Honestly, one of the, the prayers I had going into that was that uh, there would just be new leadership that would arise. Uh, in my absence, uh, kind of leading a number of different ministries, uh, that new leaders would step up and do new initiatives, doing evangelism, doing set up on Sunday mornings, doing all types of work throughout the week, and honestly, I, I think we've really been blessed by seeing a lot of you step into new places, and I'm encouraged by that. Uh, I can't wait to, I mean, a big part of this church is seeing every member thrive, every member use their gifts in the service of the church, and uh, I can't wait to see that even furthered uh, as, I, as we get back. A few big takeaways, just briefly. I'm not going to do a big uh, review of all sabbatical. That would take too long, but just a couple things. Um, number one, uh, one thing for me, and I've realized, and I want to encourage this for the church, um, I need a more regular cadence of full days of connection with the Lord. So I, I take a Sabbath every week. I guard that with my life. I take that, I take that every week. Um, but one thing I'm aiming to do coming back from sabbatical is once a month uh, to actually use a full day uh, to actually just kind of draw away and think big picture for the church. That's something I got away from for a number of years, but to really just connect with the Lord and pray and say, what are you doing? And, and, and just sense from the Holy Spirit what he's up to. Uh, another big takeaway for me uh, is just uh, some areas where I want sharpening theologically, areas where I've seen there's a great need in the church to keep forming good doctrine that we'd worship God well. And uh, I think Sarah and I have decided that in the fall, uh, I'll be pursuing uh, another kind of program to kind of further my education. And it all will happen kind of behind the scenes, not stepping anything away from pastoral ministry. But the heart with that program I'll be pursuing is to really keep sharpening so that I can just be a better pastor and, and really push back against some of the stuff we see in society around us by laying good doctrine that we would be a church that knows God and that worships God as he really is. So a few quick takeaways from you. Again, thank you. Thank you for gifting that to our family. Just so grateful for you guys. With that, let's get into Psalm 24. All right, Psalm 24. Open up your Bibles if you got them with you. The book of Psalms is right in the middle of the Bible. And we are in Psalm 24. Wow, do we have a good Psalm to cover today. Um, let me remind us what the Psalms are about. The Psalms are the songbook of the Old Testament. So what that means is that all of these were originally songs, hymns, poems that were constructed that were then to be read and sung in a congregational form all through the Old Testament, meaning all the days before Jesus came and also during the days of Jesus. This, is, this was the songbook of Jesus. This was the, the songs and the poems that he would have been reading and memorizing and singing 
And as we've said almost every week, and as I've tried to teach with the book of Psalms, these are not just meant to be read as if they're doctrine somewhere like over here apart from your life. The Psalms are meant to be digested and internalized so that when you, when you read the words, you, you become the words. When you, when, you, when you sing the words repeatedly as a church family, as a, as a small group, as a family on your own, as just an individual, when you regularly repeat these words, then what happens over time is that the words form something in you, and you end up praying the very same words as King David. That's remarkable, right? That you end up realizing you're in your room, you're praying, and you're praying these words, and then suddenly you realize this is exactly how King David prayed. This is how Josiah prayed. This is how Hezekiah prayed. This is how Jesus prayed. And you realize that you're connected to this great movement of God throughout history. Now, a little bit of context for you is Psalm 24. A little later on in the message, you're gonna see exactly what I mean with this. Psalm 24 is actually a call and response psalm. Certain sections of this, the way it was done communally, congregationally in the church, some of the lines would be read by one leader, and then the whole congregation would would kind of say back the next part. And then the leader would say the next part, and then the whole congregation would say the next part. We actually do a little bit of that sometimes. From time to time, we'll do like a confession where I'll say a bit of the confession and the whole congregation will read a part of a confession back. That tradition comes from the book of Psalms. And we'll see that a little later. We'll actually engage with it that way later on. This was written by King David. A little note for you as you go through the Psalms. My Bible has the title, the King of Glory, And then it has a little note that says, a Psalm of David. Two things, uh, the the title and that little note are not truly the biblical text. That is uh, the publisher's effort at organizing this. The, The word, a Psalm of David, that little note goes all the way back to rabbinic tradition. Those are very ancient notes. They're best efforts at trying to understand where these Psalms came from. But those are not the original biblical text. We only have the Psalms and then the rabbinic tradition telling us who wrote it. So we believe this was written by King David. This particular psalm is unique. There were a handful of psalms that were read and recited every single week within the temple walls. Psalm 24 was always read on Sunday morning within the temple walls. That was the weekly rhythm. This was where the priests would come together. They would be beginning their work in the temple in the Old Testament days. And part of their preparing their heart for what they were about to do was they would gather and they would recite Psalm 24 together. That's Jewish history tells us that. Now, if there's one big idea with Psalm 24, you're gonna see this in the, t- in the text as we read through it. It's this. Victory belongs to the king of glory. Victory belongs to the king of glory. Let me read it to us. I invite you to read with me in your hearts. I'll read. You can read silently. (laughs) The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, the world and those who dwell therein, for he has founded it upon the seas and established it upon the rivers. Who shall ascend the hill of the Lord? Who shall stand in his holy place? He who has clean hands and a pure heart, who does not lift up his soul to what is false, who does not swear deceitfully, He will receive blessing from the Lord and righteousness from the God of his salvation. Such is the generation of those who seek him, who seek the face of the God of Jacob. Listen to this. Lift up your heads, O gates, and be lifted up, O ancient doors, that the king of glory might come in. Who is this king of glory? The Lord 
strong and mighty, the Lord mighty in battle. Lift up your heads, O gates, and lift them up, O ancient doors, that the king of glory may come in. Who is this king of glory? The Lord of hosts. He is the king of glory. Three ideas here I want to work through as we wrestle with this idea that victory belongs to the king of glory. The first idea is this. The king's authority spreads over the entire earth. Okay, The king's authority spreads over the entire earth. The psalm is broken into three pretty neat little sections. And actually, as I was preparing for this sermon, I at first had a little bit of a difficult time connecting these sections. Like, how, do, how does verses 1 and 2 relate to verses 3 through 6, relate to verses 7 through 10? They almost seem like individual packets of information. But they're all strung together with this idea of victory belonging to the king of glory. Verses one and two, the king has authority over the entire earth. Listen to what it says. The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, the world and those who dwell therein. He has founded upon the seas and established it upon the rivers. Christianity is a monotheistic religion. Now, that might sound like, duh, no-brainer, but we gotta work through that. That's what uh, verses one and two are getting after, and there's more to it than just that. It's monotheistic. The Jewish people believe that the Jewish people, the people of the Old Testament, Christians as well, believe that there is one God. There's one God, and his authority is over everything. His authority is not partial, it's not 99%. He doesn't have 99% power over what takes place in your life and over the direction of your life and over the direction of this city. He's not in 99% control, and then the secular powers that be are in 1% control. Satan's in 1% control. God has 98% control, and then, you know, these forces over here have 2%. No. God has full authority and control over all things. Monotheistic. He is the one and the only. God's over all things. Now, here's the thing. As a monotheistic religion, it makes no difference what anyone believes about him. Okay, So whether or not somebody chooses to believe that the God of the Bible is in control makes no difference whatsoever on whether or not he's in control. He is in control. So as much as an atheist wants to push against that idea and say, I just don't believe it, that has no bearing whatsoever on the reality that God's in control over all things. I remember when I was in Thailand, I was a missionary. uh, After I graduated college, actually my wife and I uh, kind of Our relationship blossomed while we were in Thailand, got to know each other as friends. And I lived as a missionary, and I remember I had been trained in college with Campus Crusade's four laws. And wonderful four laws, these four laws have been used uh, marvelously in America to bring many people to faith in Jesus Christ, continue to get used. We have crew staff here with us today that uh, we love and serve our church very faithfully. And the first law really talks about God. There is a God. He has a wonderful plan for your life. I botched it, Allie. I'm sorry. It's something like that, though. There is a God, and he has a wonderful plan for your life. That's the first law. That's where we begin when we talk about uh, God with people in the West. Well, in Thailand, that didn't work. Because when you use the word God in the West, in a place like America, even if you're an atheist, Christianity has so shaped the culture of America over the last hundreds of years that for the most part, most people have a sense that when I say God, I'm talking about the big guy, the one and only God who has authority over everything. But when I lived in Thailand, it was a religiously pluralistic, uh, many different gods society. They didn't have a concept of one single God. 
And so I couldn't begin with the first law of Campus Crusade when I began to share the gospel with people because they would say, well, which God are you talking about? They had many gods. They had many demons that they also appeased every single day. Literally, they, they would appease the gods on this side and then the demons on this side and, and hope that they fared out by appeasing both of them. And so we had to actually begin with a, with a different kind of starting place and, and correct the, the mistakes of the religious pluralism of Thailand. And we had to say, look, uh, though, though your culture uh, recognizes many different powers that be, there is actually only one God over all things. And this was a breathtaking reality. It was like, that can't be when I was in Thailand. Well, if we go back to the context of Psalm 24, it was much more like the context of Thailand than it is like our America that we know. Okay, so when verses one and two come out with this monotheistic drum roll, there's one God, he's over all things. That was a cultural shock to the surrounding nations, and on the bad days of the people of God, and in the bad years and seasons when they had allowed the idolatry to kind of slip in to their worship, slip into their family, slip into the ways they went about life, it was a bit of a shock to them as well. Now, if we could fast forward to us, we once again are living in a religiously pluralistic society. And I've been harping, I've been beating on that drum a lot over the last number of years. And, and for those of you that grew up in, the, in a Christian world, for those of you that kind of went through the youth group experience, and, and praise God for that, that's incredible. I'm praying that for my three girls, that they would grow up and, and never have a season of their life where they would run away from the Lord or where they wouldn't be walking firmly with him. I love that story. But, but oftentimes what happens is it, we don't realize when we've been in the Christian bubble for so long that society around us, the city at large, has once again descended into a religiously pluralistic society. The great evil that you could say is that there's only one God. The, the great evil you can say in a secular society is that there is no other God but Jesus. Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. Right? As Jesus said, the great sin that you could possibly say is there's only one way. Why? Because we're in a religiously pluralistic society again. And so my, my argument today is verses one and two should not be skimmed over too quickly. Let that sit with you for a moment as you prepare for the rest of this psalm. There's one God. There's one God. Trinity, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. He's in full control over all things. He's ruling and reigning right now. He's in full authority over your life. He, he's the one that's sustaining the universe by the word of his power, Hebrews chapter one. That means Chicago as well. That means your street. That means the schools. That means the, the government. That means all things. He's sustaining it by the word of his power. He's in control. He's who we go before today. Second idea that comes from this psalm. Only those who have cleansed themselves may come before the king. Only those who have cleansed themselves may come before the king. This is pretty straight out of the passage, but this is fascinating. And actually, as I was reading it to you, I saw something that I did not prepare. I'm gonna preach that as well, okay? So here, let me read this section again. Who shall ascend the hill of the Lord? Who shall stand in his holy place? Who? He who has clean hands and a pure heart, who does not lift up his soul to what is false, who does not swear deceitfully. He'll receive blessing from the Lord and righteousness from the God of his salvation, such as the generation of those who seek him, who seek the face the God of Jacob. Okay, well, what's this first verse getting after? Who shall ascend the hill of the Lord? That's asking who will achieve salvation. 
Now, salvation's an interesting word, right? Salvation, we use that and we throw that word around in the church and it's kind of familiar to us. Most of the world outside of this room uh, when they, they don't use the word salvation or being saved as often as Christians usually use it. It's a good word. It comes straight, straight from Scripture. We should not forget to use that word. But this is asking, who's, who's going to get salvation? That's a question that every single person, no matter what background they come from, atheist, secular, Buddhist, Hindu, Muslim, scientist, whatever your worldview background is, You're asking this question at the end of the day when you go to bed at night and when you hit your later years in life. The question that is the the drumbeat inside your life, all throughout life, how can I achieve salvation? Now, the secularist might not be thinking of God when they think those words, but but they're asking the same question. When culture around us asks the question, how, how can I have peace? How can I have fulfillment, right? What are the number one most downloaded apps these days? not number one, but right near the top of the list, it's always meditative, meditation apps. How to clear your heart and your mind. What, what are they getting after? Why, why is that so popular? Well, it's popular because people are asking the question, how can I find peace? How, in the midst of everything happening, how can, I, how can I find stillness? What are these questions people are asking? It's this, who shall ascend the hill of the Lord? They're asking it in different words and in different ways, but everyone's seeking the exact same thing. How do I find peace? How do I find fulfillment? How do I find that which I was made for, which is salvation? How do I ascend the hill of the Lord? A person who receives this salvation, according to this psalm, is the one who has both inward and outward piety. Did you see that? Inward and outward purity and piety. It's both inward and it's outward. He has to have clean hands. Well, what does clean hands mean? It means that you haven't committed sin. It means that you're not using your hands and your physical body to do things in this life that God would not be pleased with, that God said in his law, don't do these things. And then when it says, he must have a pure heart. Well, that's exactly how Jesus taught, isn't it? He he took all the physical laws in the Sermon on the Mount, and then he went to the heart and he said, okay, it's not just don't commit adultery, right? Don't, Don't have sex outside of marriage, that's adultery. But, but I say, I'm interested in your heart, and if you even look at a woman with lust in, your, lust in your heart, you've already committed adultery. You're already guilty. It's not just don't murder. Yeah, that's a, that's, a, that's a sin. That's a crime. But I say, if you look at a brother with anger in your heart, you're already liable to judgment. What's Jesus getting after? It's Psalm 24. He who has clean hands and a pure heart. Our sins are attached to the condition of the heart. It's inward and it's outward purity. It goes on. It, it, who does not lift up his soul to what is false, who does not swear deceitfully. These are inward, my heart is in alignment with God, and I'm living a life holistically, that that honestly in my heart, I'm, I'm, I'm right with God. And then outwardly, what flows from that is that my actions, the way I live, the way I raise my family, the way I engage society, the way I, I, I love my children and I speak to my neighbors, It's clean hands. It's all flowing from an inward purity into an outward purity. Now, here's the great irony of this. David wrote this, as far as we know, and and the best scholarship suggests that this is what we call a a victory psalm. What a victory psalm is, is is a psalm that was historically sung marching back from battle, 
okay? So, so King David and his men, this is what most scholarship thinks, they're coming back from battle where they had the Ark of the Covenant with them. The Ark of the Covenant was this golden chest that held the Ten Commandments that was kind of like, it was supposed to be the presence of God among the people in the Old Testament. They had this Ark of the Covenant with them. They're coming back from a victorious battle and they're marching back into Jerusalem and they're singing this song. Now imagine King David leading his people in this song. What's the irony there? Well, King David didn't have clean hands, and he certainly didn't have a pure heart. All right? Here he is. He's, he's walking his people. He's saying, who will, who will achieve salvation? And then the very next word of his mouth is, not me. <laughs> not me, if it's up to me. Why? Well, what do we know about King David's story? He didn't have clean hands. We know the stories. I've preached on these many times from this pulpit. King David had an affair, right? He had an affair with Bathsheba. By the way, Bathsheba was married to one of his best friend's wives. Uriah the Hittite was one of his 30 mighty men, a guy he had slept under the stars with, who he had bled with on the battlefield. And then, to try to cover it up, he had had Uriah placed in the front of the battle so he would be killed because he got Bathsheba pregnant. I mean, this is a guy, that, that's not clean hands. That's not even dirty hands. That's filthy hands. That's, those are the kind of hands... Those are the kind of hands that a lot of uh, overly churched people that are familiar with very clean, tidy spaces, when those hands walk in doors like this, we oftentimes don't know what to do with those hands, right? David was one of those guys. He also didn't have that pure of a heart, did he? Well, how do we know that? Well, it started with lust over Bathsheba. He spotted Bathsheba when he was supposed to be at a battle. He was looking at a woman he wasn't supposed to be, and then he called her up to him. That's how the whole thing started. That was adultery of the heart. But later on, David, in his life, he takes this census. I don't know if you know this story. David takes a census of his people, and one of his great commanders says, David, I don't think you should do this. And what was the problem with the census? He was numbering his people because he was getting proud of himself as a king of what he was accomplishing. You know, I want to know how many people I got. I'm, I'm taking numbers. I want to see this thing swell, right? And God comes down <laughs> And there's judgment for that. It, it, was a, it, was a, it was a purity of the heart situation. So David's marching victoriously after battle. Who will achieve salvation? He who has clean hands and a pure heart. Right? You can almost imagine him saying it like that, walking back in. But, but then he looks back and he sees the Ark of the Covenant and he realizes that this is not about him. This is about who that Ark of the Covenant represents. See, the story of us, when we read this psalm, is that in some ways we can place ourselves in David's shoes and recognize that his story is a lot like our story. Every single one of us has fallen short of the glory of God. None of us have clean hands. And Christianity, honestly, we say this a lot, but we get it wrong in the practical way we live our lives. This is the doctrine of total depravity. Every single person has fallen short of the standard that God set for us. What is that standard? The standard is the life of Jesus Christ. That's the standard. What we like to do when we compare ourselves to other people and we think about our own righteousness, we think about our own goodness and, and where we fall in the great line of mor morality. Most of us, most, myself included on my weekdays, this is what we do. We think of Mother Teresa over here somewhere, <laughs> okay? And then us, kind of like right here. <laughs> and everybody else. This is what happens. It's Mother Teresa, it's us, and then everybody else. And then we, we, we rank ourselves on this platform and we think, I, I've got pretty clean hands. 
I've got a pretty pure heart. And we, we fundamentally mistake the message of the gospel and what Christian maturity looks like, okay? I want to, my, my heart, my heart as a pastor is to raise up a spiritually mature church, a mature church, not a church, you know, Paul, when he would write to his churches that he had pastored, he, he'd say, look, I still have to feed you with spiritual milk and honey. Like, I, I still gotta give you the baby stuff. I, I can't even really even get to King Melchizedek yet and, I, and the high priesthood yet. I, I can't even get to those things. I, I gotta keep laying the, the baby milk food stuff down. And, and honestly, we, we're quite a mature church. There's some folks in here that have been walking with Jesus for a long time, but on this one, can I tell you, we, we practically get this wrong a lot. And it comes out in very subtle ways. The doctrine of total depravity is that we are like David. We have unclean hands and an impure heart. And the only reason that God has had mercy on us has nothing to do with what we've brought to God, but everything to do with what God has done for us. Salvation has come from outside of us. God didn't look at us and say, they've kind of got their life in order. He'd be a good one to save. He'd be a good one to graft into the church. In that case, it was like 50% Jesus' mercy, 50% I kind of had it, you know, kind of in the right lane already. That is not the message of the gospel. We've broken God's law. We have unclean hands, and no one is permitted to ascend the hill of the Lord. Not one, because none of us have clean hands. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 22 and 23. Speaking of Jesus, it says this. Jesus, he, he committed no sin. Neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. There is only one who has clean hands. There is only one who has a pure heart. And the message of Christianity is that what we do constantly is we look to him. It's not to ourselves. We don't start to boast in what we've accomplished. We keep looking up at Jesus, he who has clean hands and a pure heart, our champion, and we bank it all on him because the message of the gospel is that Jesus accomplished what we couldn't. And the language is fascinating. Who shall ascend the hill? Jesus ascended a hill. He who had clean hands and a pure heart ascended a hill. And it was a hill that none of us would dare ascend. And he went up that hill of Calvary knowing exactly what he was doing. The only one, our champion, who ever could do this ascends the hill where he went underneath the judgment of God on our behalf. This is why it goes on, 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 24 and 25. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you've been healed, for you were straying like sheep but have now returned to the shepherd an overseer of your souls. Let's get this straight. Here's, this is the church. We've gathered together as a community of believers for worship. And when we come into this place, the, the anthem, the resounding anthem of each of our lives is our God has had unbelievable mercy on a wretch like me. And he's redefined my life while I was an enemy of the cross. I wasn't chasing after him, and then he's like, thank you for chasing me. I was an enemy of the one true God who has authority, verses one and two, over all things, and in my enemy rebel status, like King David, he poured abundant mercy on me when he pulled me out of the miry clay and set my feet on the solid rock of Christ, and he gave me faith. I didn't muster that faith on my own. 
And I won't keep that faith on my own. It's he that gives the strength to maintain that faith from night to night. Through his wounds we're healed. It, when ego shows itself up in the church, it looks like no room for the outsider to come in and be a part of your community. And that will squelch the power of a church immediately. Let's get, let's get this application real clear. Sometimes the church gets this holy huddle thing happening. And what the holy huddle looks like is we have no margin or room in our life for someone with what we consider unclean hands to be in our life. Yet the very thing we're supposed to be doing is pouring our life into those that are far from God. And my, my question for you this morning, and this is a question I'm asking myself as I head into this next season, as I come back from a sabbatical and I'm thinking about where I spend my hours in ministry, is, is what does your life look like? What does your time look like? Who are you spending your time with? You know, on a Sunday morning like this, I, let's do that. Look around at the empty chairs that are here. Now, it's summer. You know, folks are traveling. But, but look at the empty chairs. What would it look like on a Sunday morning for every chair in this room to be filled with those who are very far from God. Not, not because we've created the best concert in town. I'm not talking about building a seeker-sensitive church where we're appealing to the non-Christian's temperament to try to make it flash. I don't wanna do that, not that. Just, we're so deep in community with those who have unclean hands because we recognize we're the chief of sinners. And our lives are now overlapping with a lot of people who have not experienced the mercy of God, but we're desperate for them to experience it because we've experienced it, and it's so good that we can't help but bring them with us in all of life. What would it look like for a year from now for every one of these chairs to be filled with someone who does not yet know Jesus? And though they might not like the message I preach, they keep coming back and back and back because your life, not mine, your life, who's in their life, is so compelling to them. Who shall ascend the hill of the Lord? Only one, Jesus. But when you place your faith in Jesus, he has mercy on a sinner like you. And then he begins this new life of, of, of redefining you. And, and he, he gives you fully clean hands and a, and a pure heart. Not perfectly, but when God looks at you, a believer, he no longer sees your clean, unclean hands. He sees Jesus' clean hands over you. That's the gospel. So God looks down on you despite your sin and fully forgives you. Now, for those in this room that have never put their faith in Jesus, or if I could, those in this room that are backsliding today and that are beginning to doubt and beginning to walk away from God, I beg of you right now, look to your champion Jesus and be renewed this morning. It's his clean hands and pure heart over you. And God is looking down and he sees all of your sin, but will forgive it entirely if you place your faith in Christ and repent and just say, I, I want him. I want to be underneath his banner. He's got a plan for your life. The one true God who has authority over everything. Find yourself underneath his mercy. Number three, the king has entered the gates. <laughs> the king has entered the gates. Verses seven through 10, as I read them the first time, I hope you picked it up, the phrase the king of glory is used five times in these three verses. Who is this king of glory? King of glory, only place in all of scripture that that phrase shows up, five times in three verses. King of glory, king of glory, king of glory. So what I'm gonna do right now, 
I'm going to explain this part of the text in its original context. Then I'm going to push into the text. I'm going to show you what it really means. And then I'm going to push through the text. And I'm going to give us a glimpse into something that we are privileged to be able to look into. First, the text in its context. Let's read this as it would have originally been read. David's coming back from battle. He's got the Ark of the Covenant with him. They've just won a mighty victory. Everyone knows God won the victory for them. They're marching back up, and they get to verses 7 through 10, okay? Here's how this would have been read. Now, I need, I need a guy with a big, bellowing voice. Who's got this for me? Huh? Gee, where, where are we? Where's Austin? Where's Austin? Austin, you're over here. Did you leave the room? There you are. Austin, I'm picking on you today, okay? I, you know what? I almost went Brian, but I'm going to go out. You can do it together if you want. You know what? Brian and Austin, okay? You're my priests, okay? It's the Old Testament days. Fill this room for me, okay? There's going to be a part up here called priests inside, okay? When you see priests inside, that's your line. Got it? You're coming back from the battle. You're standing at the gates, Okay, congregation, when you see the word crowd, that's all of you. We're gonna do it like they would have done this psalm originally in the first context, got it? Let's put this up behind me. I'll be the leader of the crowd, okay? Begins this way. Lift. The Lord, strong and mighty. The Lord mighty in battle. It's the Lord of hosts. He's the King of glory. You want to be there, don't you? standing outside that temple gate with the Ark of the Covenant after slaying the enemy who was gonna attack all of Israel. King David marches in and then you got chills over you and the gate starts to open and you march into the castle and you have a party, why? Because you know God reigns and you know God brought full victory and will sustain that victory every day of your life. Now can I tell you something? Put, put yourself, if you feel that, that's every Sunday morning. That's Sunday morning. Every Sunday morning, we come together. This is why you cannot miss one Sunday, because your soul was made for your blood to boil for God. And that is what it looks like for your blood to boil for God. You wanna miss that moment? What if you slept in that day, you know? I'm not coming that day because, you know, I was up late last night, I couldn't sleep, and I had a sore throat, right? That's not a COVID comment. I didn't mean to use sore throat. <laughs> but it, but look, at, look at this. This is the text in its context. You need that every Sunday. Not one day gets missed. Why? 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 Because it's the king of glory, and he gives you victory there is no victory that does not belong to the Lord in your life. And you need it. You need it. And your neighbor needs it. And your neighbor's neighbor needs it. And your coworker needs it. Church, this is the text in its context. This is the psalm. Digest it. Like, 
Like, let it sink so deep that you wake up. And I sent this week in my email to, to the, on Friday. I sent this in my email. I said, look, if you want to make more of Sunday, we don't need better sermons. We don't need more lights. We don't need a color screen, right? We don't have a color screen. I have to do all my slides in black and white. We don't need the color screen. You know what we need? We need Saturday night to prepare our hearts for Sunday morning. We need, we need to be on our at home. Just, God, what have you done this week? Prepare my soul. I can't wait to gather with the saints and sing praises to my God. The text in its context. Ooh, let's push in a little bit. What day of the week was this song sung? I said it to start. What day? Palm Sunday. Let's push through this text a little bit. The king. The king of glory. Jesus Christ. He sits on a donkey. He's, he's walking down towards the temple. They've been singing this psalm in the temple for hundreds of years on repeat on Sunday morning. <laughs> Crowds are gathered around Jesus. Matthew chapter 21 says, outside the walls of Jerusalem, Jesus is coming down, marching towards the city, fulfilling prophecy, and then the crowds are saying, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. And while the crowds are saying that, what are the temple priests saying? <laughs> They're saying, lift up your heads, O gates, and lift them up, O ancient doors, that the king of glory might come in. Who is this king of glory? The Lord of hosts. He is the king of glory. See, when Jesus showed up, the king of glory entered into the human story and fulfilled Psalm 24 on Palm Sunday when he marched up to the temple doors. And the priests unwittingly sang praises to the very man they were about to execute. The king of glory came in. Now, let's push through the text. Let's see something that I'm amazed that humans get to look into. I heard Paul Washer, a wonderful pastor and preacher, preach on Psalm 24 years ago, defining a sermon for me. The ancient church fathers <clears throat> have a tradition that this is the psalm, these words find their final fulfillment, not in David's battle, not in Palm Sunday, but on Ascension Sunday. Ascension Sunday, Jesus Christ <laughs> enters into his final glory. And he goes and he stands in the heavenlies and he, he stands before the gates of heaven that had been locked to all humans from the fall of Adam. No human ever dared enter that place. Every human who ever died before the crucifixion, before the resurrection, where did they go? They went to a place like heaven. It was a holding place, if you will. It was good. They were waiting for what? They were waiting for heaven to be unlocked. That's what they were waiting for. They were waiting for someone to have the audacity to stand before the heavenly gates that were locked and to fling them wide open. Jesus Christ resurrects. He stands before those heavenly gates. The real temple. We know that the temple on the earth was just a shadow of the substance which is in heaven. And he stands before the gates and he cries out in a loud voice in a glorified human body. Lift up your heads, O gates. Lift, be lifted up, O ancient doors. 
that the king of glory might come in. And Paul Washer says it so well. He says, you could just imagine the angels on the inside of those gates scratching their heads. No one stands on the other side of that door. And finally, after some time, just wondering, what are they supposed to do in this moment? One bold, brave angel shouts over the wall, who is this king of glory? Who is this that dares to stand before these gates? The Lord, strong and mighty. The Lord, mighty in battle. And all the angels recognize the voice. They say, could it be? Is it true? Is the, are the gates really open? And now in a choir of angels, the angels repeat again, who is this king of glory? And Jesus shouts it, the Lord of hosts, he is the king of glory. The fullness of this text find its reality in your eternity. If you've placed your faith in Jesus Christ, the gates of heaven have been flung open for you. And the king of glory, he who sits on the throne is Jesus Christ. He rules and reigns over it all and he invites every single person who wants to enter in, who wants to place their faith in Jesus, to enter in underneath his name, under his banner, declaring that his kingdom is over every other kingdom that could ever be named. His name is over every other name that could ever be named. He is the king of glory, amen? Whew, let's, let's, let's apply this. Victory belongs to the king of glory. Victory belongs to the king of glory. Let me apply this in two ways. Let me apply it to the Christian in the room, and then I want to apply it to the non-Christian. The way you apply this is to live like he is really the king of glory. As Christians, <clears throat> that means that we are to live with a bold fervor for Christianity. If Jesus has claimed authority over every sphere of life, and he sits on his throne, and he's opened the floodgates of heaven, and now he's ruling and reigning, and he has your whole life, well, that means that we ought to live as if that's true. And that is a, a call to every follower of Christ to live boldly under the banner of Christ. And to not treat your Christianity like it's a tack onto your life off on the side, but to recognize your life's been redefined by the king who's entered his final throne. And you're here living as one who's been redefined that way. And to live with a boldness and a hunger and a zeal for his kingdom to go forward. Jesus doesn't need you to further his kingdom. He's fully competent on his own. But he's invited you into the process. Live with a boldness. Live with a fire in your eyes. Live with a fire in your heart to see the, the king of glory's reputation be brought forward into everywhere where he's placed you and then go into darkness yourself. This, this whole message, I've been trying to, to, to inspire inside of you a sense of if you keep this here and just shine it in the light areas already, you're missing it. Light shines in the darkness. Matt, Jesus taught us that in Matthew 5, in the same way, let your light shine before others so they might see your good works and give glory to your Father who's in heaven. Live boldly for Christ. He's on his throne. To those in the room who are yet to place their faith in Christ, or perhaps, perhaps you're in this room and you are backsliding right now. That's a phrase we use often to talk about those who are in a season of life where for some reason or another you've been distant from Jesus, you've known the Lord before, but maybe you're distant and you, you haven't come to church in a while, you're not a, really a part of a church, you got one foot in and one foot out, let me remind us what we've met, learned from this. Who can ascend the hill of the Lord? Only those who have clean hands. 
what I've experienced with people who are backsliding in their faith is that they begin to get into a, a place where they begin to question whether it could all be true or not, whether Jesus really is as good as he says he is and whether his hands are really as clean as they are. And I want to appeal to you if you're in this room right now and you've been backsliding and you have not been seeking the Lord to recognize that when, one day when you stand before the Lord in your judgment, you're either going to go before God with your own hands or you're going to go with the hands of Christ. And if your story is anything like mine and if you have any sense of honesty about you, when you look inside and you recognize your story and the sin you've been a part of in your life and, and the thoughts you've had in your life that are that are, are not God's design or desire, then, then I don't want to be on my judgment day standing before a holy and just God with my own hands representing myself. And I appeal to you today to place your faith in Jesus fully and to run back to the king who sits on his throne. If you've been running away, don't leave this room without running the other way. He invites you up the hill that he's already gone on your behalf. You don't have to carry the weight. He's carried the burden for you. And he forgives every moment you've ever walked away. He forgives every sin you've ever committed. Past, present, future. He knows you're backsliding and there's no shame in it. He covers all shame. He invites you back to the foot of the cross and to live in the fullness of the love of Christ. I'm gonna invite our band to come up as they lead us in one more song. And what I'd like to do is have a time of prayer during this. If, if you'll stand up with me as the band comes up and begins, I'm gonna pray over us and I'm actually gonna invite you, I'm gonna invite some of our deacons to maybe spread yourself out around the wall if, if, if you're comfortable with that, deacons. And for believer, non-believer, backslider, you're, you've been walking firm with the Lord, this last song of worship is a time for you to worship the King of glory. And if you need to connect with someone in prayer during this moment, maybe what you need is to just pray with a deacon. There is power in praying with somebody from the church. No pressure, but if the Spirit is leading you in any way, come forward during this song. Sing with us, join in worship. Father, we love you. I pray that your Spirit would move in this room right now that you would do a wonderful work reminding us of the truth of Psalm 24, that we would not leave here today the same as we came in, that we would worship the king of glory and power and truth, that we would have a new commitment to the work you've called us to, to seek the lost, to bring the great news of salvation to everyone who will listen, and to join in the, the song of the saints, our heritage of singing praise to our king and walking in the fullness of our own salvation. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.